This is Paul Bright, and today we have talking with us Alexander Cheeves. I'm thrilled that he's here with us today. He is a sex columnist whose column appears at the end of Out Magazine. It's on the very last page. It's sort of like dessert after a tasty meal dining on the contents of Out. Alex is also a contributing editor at The Advocate magazine, and his columns and his commentary are known for their frank, unflinching perspectives of queer sex and queer love. Uh, he also has his own blog called Love Beastly, and all of this as well is going to be showing up in his book, his book which is publishing in October, I'm looking forward to reading it, called My Love is a Beast. We're going to talk about his book in just a couple of minutes, but first, the reason why Alex is here is because he wrote a column a while back in Out Magazine talking about how he wanted to see messy sex in gay films. You know, not not every sex scene would be a romance and tender and everything works out right. So I'm curious to know exactly what he has in mind and what he wants to be seeing for that. So we're going to be delving into those topics as well. Alex, welcome. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. You've written that you saw Brokeback Mountain, and the sex in Brokeback was unrealistic. I mean, Brokeback Mountain, bless its heart, it got a lot of criticism over the sex scene. You know, I mean, it was so easy to make fun of, and uh, you know, like the beans, and and um, I would say that most sex scenes, while they make a valiant effort to to be realistic, they don't mirror my sex life. I mean, I. I'm kinky, I am non-monogamous, I am polyamorous, I almost never have sex with the same person twice. Um, and so a lot of the sex scenes are romantic and sweet and or they're between couples and, and they're always meant to, I don't know, I, I just think that a lot of depicted sex scenes are beautiful and I don't think that my sex is necessarily all that beautiful. I like sex that is rough and carnal and messy and where you make mistakes and communication errors. And, and um, I think that's really interesting material for film that you never really see. I, I mean, I, mean uh, I think in the column I mentioned Pose, um, the TV show, which is really release some really beautiful sex scenes, but they're still beautiful. And I think that there's still a sanitized version of what not only my sex life is like, but a lot of queer sex lives are like and gay sex lives. There's something that feels almost as if we're trying to replicate the hetero vision of what a romantic sex scene is. Yeah, it's as if we're saying we've met the one true love of our life and now we're going to live happily ever after. Yeah. Well, to me, sex is not the same as love. Sex is about fun, and it's about pleasure. And if you're tricking, you, you might not even know this guy's real name. I mean, you don't know if he's using his real name on the app. You have no idea who you're actually having an intimate, fun, pleasurable moment with. Yeah, and that's not crazy to me. I feel like I, feel like I, I, I can't be the only gay man who looks at you know, gay depictions of sex and think, oh, this isn't realistic. I mean, every every person I know primarily has anonymous hookups and wild, crazy sex parties. I mean, I, I really don't know anybody whose sex life largely consists of these romantic, coupley sex scenes. I, I, so I can't be the only one, like, 
not connecting to what we see. Well, I will say that I do understand why some men, and I'll kind of include myself in this, feel more comfortable having a monogamous partner or having a significant partner that you spend most of your sexual energy with. I, I'm in my mid-50s. The thrill of the hunt isn't as thrilling as it used to be. And, you know, if when I'm on the apps looking for somebody new, there's, it takes a lot of time. You can put a lot of energy on these dating apps, and oftentimes you never ultimately wind up meeting. You spend this time chatting, and then nothing comes of it. Um, you wrote in uh, your most recent column in Out Magazine that you're coming out of COVID, and you're having to adjust to a new sexual life um, as a result of what's happened over the last 16, 18 months or so. Can you tell us more about that? You know, I... I don't know. I, I, I mean, like I said in the article, I have a lot of post-COVID anxiety about sex. Um, just because I've been a year without practice and I've never, since I started having sex, I started having sex very young, I haven't had such a dry spell in my life as, as with COVID. And so I really don't know. I've, this is the first time I've ever experienced coming back into sex from a long period of only having sex with my partner. And I guess that's the, this has been the most surprising part of coming out of COVID is learning that I, who I generally consider myself a pretty sexually confident person, I feel like I've lost a, a degree of that. And I'm sort of having to rediscover what sex looks like post-pandemic. I think, and I think a lot of people are in the same situation. I, for the article, I actually interviewed several people who's unfortunately they a lot of the, my interviews got cut from the final piece but i interviewed a couple porn stars i interviewed some some escorts that i know and even people who i consider sort of like these titans of sex people who have very public and adventurous sex are struggling with what the future of their sex lives look like right now so I think we're all going to have to figure it out. <laughs> we had a pandemic before in the 80s, and our culture of gay men used to greet each other back in the 70s by kissing each other on lips, even if you were meeting somebody for the first time and it wasn't intended as a hookup. It was just a casual kind of, hello, I recognize you. And we've stopped doing that because the 80s, we feared that that could be a death sentence. So that's one thing from the pandemic of the 80s that has permanently affected our culture, or at least to this point. Yeah, I... I've spoken to some people who describe it as the the 30 40 year dry spell like you know it, it's it, it totally changed the way that they approached intimacy and um yeah i mean i still i still know people who haven't fully recovered from the trauma of of the years of the plague uh and i think that's i think that my generation is a really interesting moment. I write about this in the book, so maybe we're jumping ahead. I, I write about, you know, I, I can't know what future generations will define men my age by. I suspect that it'll be marked 20 years from now as sort of a reorientation of what a gay identity is. But beyond that, um, a gay man my age grew up, you know, in the advent of not only a lot of social success for for 
for the LGBT rights movement, but also medical science success. I mean, as my age grew up in grew up in prep, that we grew up in we grew up in 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 single pill regiments. You know, I mean, my first pill that I was on, I've been positive for I don't know, ten, uh, Jesus, ten years, and 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 they gave me a single pill regimen. So you know, I I think that my generation might be marked as the very first one to begin truly to come out of the shadow of rampant sex phobia. And it, it really took 40 years for, you know, and, and advents like PrEP and treatment as prevention, I think to eat away at some of that really, really heavy phobia. And a lot of people haven't yet. And I can't say that that's wrong. I mean, the generation before me is gone, so. Yeah, fortunately yeah. with PrEP and the current meds, transmitting HIV is uh, very unlikely. Yeah, I remember I, I, I tested positive the year that the FDA approved, or no, the year before the FDA approved PrEP. But it didn't really start to become part of the lexicon until about at least maybe in the cities where I was living, it didn't really become part of the lexicon until about two years later. Like I didn't, it, I, I remember I was positive for two years before guys started saying, it's okay, I'm on prep. And those two years have were so different from the rest of my life as an HIV positive person. I mean, up until prep became widespread, people still sarasorted. And I was in the South, I was in Savannah, Georgia, where there was no sexual information being dispensed. And I remember I had to move to San Francisco before I even heard somebody say, it's okay, I'm on prep. Um, and that was my first time, almost two years after testing positive, that was my first time really hearing somebody say that. And those, and the, I tell everybody like those, those, those two years before that were, awful i mean you just get accustomed to getting blocked on grinder mm -hmm. so and that, and that never happens anymore so tell me about your book love is a beast your erotic memoir <laughs> My erotic memoir uh, the thing is is that when i pitched it i was not planning to write a memoir i did not think honestly i didn't think i was old enough to write a memoir i don't i would not generally recommend a writer at 30 years old to write a memoir um, but it ended up being one and, uh, some of the essays were previously written, but a surprising, uh, like, so when, I, when I pitched the book originally, I wanted it to be mostly previously published content. And when me and my editor sort of laid it all out, he was like, okay, well, you've gotten, you've, you become a better writer in time and your older pieces aren't as good as you thought they were. And I was like, oh, okay. So I, I wrote a lot of new content for the book. And actually, I think the strongest pieces in the book now are the new essays, but it was originally going to be a book of essays that were not going to be in chronological order. They were just going to be personal essays about my most impactful sex experiences and the lessons I learned from them. And in the editing process, we actually laid them out chronologically and my editor was like, well, this is it. So because we put it in this timeline order, it ended up being a memoir. Um, but I certainly don't wanna like, uh, I don't wanna, I, I still wanna 
treat it like a book of essays and each one can, can sort of live on its own. Um, I don't I don't see it as this as this full linear story because it focuses on the sexual experiences that were most impactful to my life and sort of define the way that I have sex now. And that's where it wraps up. In your book, do you talk about sex scenes that went wrong? I mean, there's a few in there. I I made a lot of, I mean, everybody, we all make a lot of mistakes, communication errors and sex, but, but, but I will say that as a whole, um, even the sexual experiences that had missteps and miscommunications and failures were valuable and beautiful in their way. Nothing, nothing that I write about in the book, no sexual experience I would write about in the book was traumatizing or, and, I, and I'm lucky and privileged to be able to say that because some of the sex in the book was not strictly consensual. Um, and yet I don't see it as something that has caused harm in my life. So I'm a Leatherman Dom and sometimes a submissive will ask for something that they think they really, really want. And uh, they may not say anything during the course of the scene, but when the scene is over, they will tell me that it was an awful experience for them because they discovered through the scene that that's not something that they wanted to do. I, you know, in this era of Me Too, that suddenly made me the bad guy for not officially getting complete and total consent, even though that's what the submissive asked for. I have, a, I have an essay on consent that is coming out later on in a book about, in an, in an anthology about consent, and that's all I can say about it where I actually write about this. Um, right now, people are really trying to push for a re, for a, a universal standard definition of consent that is enthusiastic consent, which, is, which means that you continuously check in and get a verbal confirmation repeatedly throughout sex. And while that's great, uh, nobody fucks like that, <laughs> you know, like, no, I certainly you know I certainly don't fuck like that, and and I that sex sounds that sex sounds like a straight person's attempt to control and codify the kind of sex that I have, and my best sex was unsolicited touching under the at Dick Doc. You know, like that's my that's my world. That's like my best sex happens in a dark room or a sex party or a sex club or with you know. A, six guys in an apartment, you know, whatever. But it's hot to sort of play with, at least in my sex life, I enjoy playing with a degree of what, of what to an outsider would look like non-consensuality. So all I can, I mean, I, I don't have a, I don't have a clear answer and I, and, and, but all I can say is that not all definitions of consent work for all communities and all demographics in all situations for all people. And, and if I was to talk to somebody who had a, unpleasant experience in BDSM, I would say, well, there's a reason why we define consent and limits and boundaries and safe words before a fetish session is because during the session, you're going off of what you discuss. So it is consensual. I mean, you may not have enjoyed it, but you weren't assaulted. You listed you listed your limits, and 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 that's not to say that it wasn't a bad experience. We learn from bad experiences. I, every kinky person has tried a kink, 
that they thought they were into and then they evolved past it. I certainly have. And that's how you grow. That's how you learn what you don't want to do next time. But it's certainly, if it's, if it's not anything, it's certainly not great. And that's my personal belief. But I don't want anybody to crucify me for that. So, so what do you talk about in My Love is a Beast? My family, my religious upbringing, my work as a sex worker a little bit, um, my experience with drugs and my experience out of drugs. If you don't mind, are you willing to talk about your experiences as a sex worker? I, and uh, full confession here, when I lived in New York City, I signed up for a profile on Rent Boy, and I thought that I could do that work because I enjoyed sex. I thought, hey, let's get paid to do this too. And I discovered very quickly that I, I'm, just not, I'm just not cut out to do it. Um, how, did, how did you get started? When I first, the first several years of sex work, I didn't, I would have never called myself a sex worker. I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody starts saying I want to trade sex for money. It just, it sort of happens over at a bar or somebody propositions you for sex and you say no, and then they throw money into the mix to sort of sweeten the deal, even the scale. And that's exactly what I, that's, that's exactly what I did. Some, I was in, I was in college. I was not even old enough to legally drink yet. And cause I've been doing this for a decade now. And uh, somebody asked me for sex who I wasn't interested in. And then they said, okay, well I'll throw some money at you. And I said, okay. Um, and honestly, I did that for years. Yeah, years before I would have ever self-identified as a sex. I, I did it all through college. You know, I, I, I paid for tattoos and booze and, you know, stuff that I didn't want my parents to know about um, through extra cash. And I, I never took a, I never took a, a, a college job because that was it. And I, and I remember when I went to, it's funny you mentioned Rent Boy. I, um, the weekend I moved to LA to write, to start writing for The Advocate was the weekend that the Rent Boy offices in Manhattan were raided by the feds. And I remember reporting on that story as one of the first pieces I ever reported on in Advocate and realizing that I could not include in the article that I was on Rent Boy and that I was personally impacted. But I remember when I went to a protest in West Hollywood of sex workers protesting the raid, and realizing that they were all different kinds of people and all different body shapes and really normal people. And they weren't these scary prostitutes of what I had in my mind, but they were just regular cool people in LA. I, that was the, really the first moment where I was like, oh, I'm one of these people. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and now I, I use rent men as every escort does. And, um, and it is a performance. I mean, it, it, and some people, I, some people can't do that. I, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of sex workers who have tried it for repeatedly and they just can't, in the same way that it's hard for some clients to compartmentalize sex and intimacy and performance, a lot of, a lot of sex workers have struggled to compartmentalize sex and intimacy and the commodification of that and um and, and it's only the people who can 
rigidly compartmentalize these experiences and and see it as purely transactional those are the only people who should be doing sex work there's a lot of there's a lot of guys you can hire out there who themselves get that conflated and they don't stay in the business too long and and i was never able to compartmentalize well also i can say that i'm a completely different person as a sex worker than i am as a regular person having sex and and I don't think that's very uncommon. I think that's pretty standard. I think that there's a lot of, I think that most guys I know who do sex work still, um, the sex they have outside of work is very different from the sex they have professionally. Um, in fact, I, the sex that I prefer to have personally is very like anonymous and intense and, you know, sort of, degrading and whereas the sex that I have when I'm when you when it's the performance of sex work that um is very intimate I I tell I tell clients that I'm not the guy to walk in and just just have sex there are guys who do that and they make a lot of money especially if they have the dick the body you know but that's I can't compete with the best looking men in Manhattan I I and I'm not I'm I'm not, it's not my business. Well, I'll just say that you're a very handsome guy. Well, thank you. But there are, thank you. But there are, there are, there are much cuter men than me in this city. And, and they make a lot of money and they make a lot of money doing, they make a lot of money serving the product that they serve. And I, I respect that. But I know that that's not what I want to get out of it. I, I see what I do is closer to therapy. I mean, my, a lot of clients don't even want to have sex. Like we, I would say my average client, if I had to sort of create like a stereotype, my average client is a man who is either married to, to a man or to a woman and was in a long-term relationship and their partner either passed away or they got divorced and they're brand new to sex for the most part. And they're really looking for someone to sort of coach and help bring them into this kind of sexuality and a lot of people find me through my writing on sex and think oh he's also a teacher so this could be easier and uh you know there are the guys that sort of just walk in and power fuck you and that's that's not my shtick that's not my that's not my product i i'm a friend and a, a listener and i I like the I like the business of intimacy. I like I like providing the impression of intimacy. Uh, well, the impression of intimacy is also intimacy. I mean, at least it is for the other guy. It is intimacy. I mean, that's the thing is like I say it's a performance, but there's nothing insincere about it. Like like there's you cannot you know connect with people if you're not interested in people. I. I, I, the men that I, the men that hire me are fascinating. I mean, a lot of them are older. They have, they live in New York. They have incredible experiences. They live through, I, I just talked to a, one of my clients not long ago was a founding member of the saint and saw, um, Grace Jones perform and like has these just incredible stories of like cruising the West side highway and, and experienced a whole culture that I'll never ever, that I'll never, that, that, that no generation 
after after him will ever live to see and will never come back. Let's jump back to your topic about messy sex in movies. I'm I'm in the middle of filming a comedy feature film. It's a sex comedy, Pocket Mouse Protector, right now. We haven't filmed the sex scenes yet, uh, but there is graphic sex in this movie. And for the film festivals and for mainstream media, whoever will carry this movie, there's a sanitized version where you don't see erect penis. Um, but there's also a director's cut of the film that if people want to see everything, then you can buy a copy of the movie. And for those of you who want to know, the director is cut. But anyway, to to you, my question is, what what would these characters and this movie do that would cross the line? Oh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> um, because I... I don't know. I, I mean, especially with film and art, I mean, is there a boundary? I mean, I mean, ever since, I mean, in a world of like Lars von Trier, I can't imagine what is the boundary of sex on screen, really. I mean, I, I, I would love, I would love to see a sex scene where I, I have not seen one, which is just crazy that I've not seen a sex scene anywhere. In, in film or TV where a guy wasn't fully clean and had to go out and douche again, where it made a mess and, or they kept going, you know, or, you know, I mean, even better, like, like, uh, because for gay men, especially sex is work. And, and there's a lot of like prep that goes into it. And there's a lot of mistakes that happen and a lot of messes that happen. And, and that's, that's real sex. I'd love to see that on, on, on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's had that experience and yet if you took if you took a picture of sex of gay sex strictly off the way that it's been presented you would think that everyone walks around with a spotless butthole and is ready to go and that's just the stupidest thing i've ever heard so but yeah i don't know i don't know i don't know what would necessarily cross the line i mean i mean i i don't know i don't think there is a, i don't think there is a line i think that I mean, we've 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 already seen so many like, in, just in like film history, we've already seen so many rape scenes, and so I mean, I feel like in terms of gay and queer sex depictions on on screen, we've only scratched the surface of what you can show, and I'm waiting for some Artur to dive deep. In the heterosexist dominant culture that we live in, you can show a nude woman in. Um these movies that play in a movie theater and it's not really considered much of a big deal. The movie is rated R. So what you show a man with a hard dick and suddenly it's considered porn. All I mean, all media companies that I work for, um, have their own standard of what is acceptable and unacceptable, which is why, you know, I think that, that I think there's a great artistry in porn. I think there's a, great artistry and smut that we have substantially lost in, 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 in especially a lot of LGBTQ media. I mean, I, this is unrelated, but like I collect old vintage gay porn magazines whenever I can find them. So whenever I can find like a good, like blue boy or drummer or honcho or any, I mean, any of these, like they're, they're great works of art. I mean, they're, there, I, I, I collect straight to hells, and they're so hard to find. And yet, they're they're a phenomenal, you know, kind of kind of content that is completely absent from the world today. And 
And I don't know why that is. I think there's probably a lot of contributing factors to that, but, but, you know, it's easy to point fingers and say like this or this or this caused the sanitation of LGBT media. And I guess that's uh, some combination of social acceptance with, you know, legal laws being passed and, uh, and the, the coming together of, 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 of media companies. But for whatever reason, it is a sanitation. And I would love to see, I mean, a pipe dream of mine is to like bring back straight to hell. But. Alex, it's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. I am so looking forward to reading your book, My Love is a Beast. It's coming out in October. Um, is there a preferred place for people to look for the book? Yeah, uh, it, it should be available everywhere. I just, I don't have a, I don't have a, I don't have a, uh, what's the term, a, pre, a pre-order link yet, but the second I do have one, my entire social media and every possible webpage that I interact with will be flooded with this link. So tell everybody to follow me and you'll give it long enough and you'll find a link. We can find out more by following your Twitter account at BadAlexCheeves. And I'm looking forward to following you on Twitter and learning more about the book. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. And if you're interested, you can find out more about Pocket Mouse Protector, the film that I'm shooting right now with graphic sex in it, at paulbrightfilms.com. I'm Paul Bright. I hope you have a great summer.